Welcome to the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council with hosts Grace Evans and Moses Bratrude. Stay informed on the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom. Get the facts, stand for truth. Hello and welcome to the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Moses Bradford. I'm here, as always, with Grace Evans. We're so excited to talk with you about our top stories this week on life, family, and religious freedom. It's a packed episode, but I'll just give you a quick heads up as to what we'll be talking about today. First of all, Britney Spears this week, uh, she's been in the news a lot, and she recently uh, revealed that she had been pressured to get an abortion. Uh, and did get an abortion. And that's a tragic reality for too many women. Grace will be talking more about that. Then we'll be talking about the 2024 election, new polling in Minnesota showing a narrower race uh, for president than I think many people had anticipated. Uh, and then also a new question about whether uh, former President Donald Trump will even be on the ballot in Minnesota next year, uh, even if he wins the nomination. I'll talk more about that just a little bit. And then finally, our main story today, uh, a school district in Minnesota, right here in the metro, that is coaching teachers to conceal minor gender transitions from parents. We've talked about this topic previously, but this is really close to home. So that will be our main story today. Grace will tell us all about it. So Grace, Britney Spears, she's a controversial figure. I think many people believe with some justification that she is, at least at the moment, uh, uh, emotionally unstable. And uh, this story dates from, uh, this is from her new memoir. Um, and she revealed that like many women, she has been pressured into getting an abortion. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it's a really tragic story, Moses. And this memoir that you mentioned is actually set to be released next week. And as kind of promo for this memoir, she dropped a huge bombshell, which is included in the memoir. And um, she claims that she was uh, pushed, uh, coerced, uh, persuaded, whatever word you want to use, into having an abortion about two decades ago by her then boyfriend, uh, Justin Timberlake. And I want to read you a quote uh, that, that she released on this. She said, in regards to finding out that she was pregnant, she says, quote, it was a surprise, but for me, it wasn't a tragedy. I love Justin so much. I always expected us to have a family together one day. This would just be much earlier than I anticipated. But Justin definitely wasn't happy about the pregnancy. He said we weren't ready to have a baby in our lives and that we were way too young. That's the end of her quote there. And so then she proceeded and, uh, and went on to have an abortion because of Timberlake's urging. Um, one more quote from her. She says, I'm sure people will hate me for this, but I agreed not to have the baby. I don't know if that was the right decision. If it had been left up to me alone, I never would have done it. And yet Justin was so sure that he didn't want to be a father. Wow. That is so sad, Moses. Really heartbreaking quotes there from Britney Spears. Um, and what, what's really, really heartbreaking about this story, Moses, is that this happens every day in our country. Um, this is a very, very common refrain from young women in our country. Most women facing unplanned pregnancies would actually keep their baby if their partner supported them in choosing life. And as we can see here, Britney Spears absolutely would have kept her baby if only her then partner, her boyfriend then, would have been supportive. Um, and, and it was truly due to him 
being quote, not ready to have a baby, that their baby lost its life. Their baby was murdered because Justin Timberlake wasn't man enough to be the father. And that's so heartbreaking. Studies have shown Moses that 64% of women who have undergone an abortion did so due to pressure from parents, boyfriends, employers, friends, etc. So 64% of women who undergo an abortion are actually coerced into doing this. It's not actually a choice that they are freely making apart from the rest of society. It's something that a lot of people push them into um, for reasons like Britney Spears said, because people are telling her, She's too young. She's not ready. It's not the right time in her life to have a child. One more thing I want to point out about this is that um, additional research that has been published by the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons, that journal has reported that over 73% of women um, with a history of abortion have experienced at least subtle forms of pressure to abort. And so that's another study that shows like even more women than 64% are pressured to abort. So I'm just showing you here that different studies um, show these alarming, alarming statistics. One other tidbit about this story, which again is so tragic, is that Brittany's actual sister, uh, Jamie, was also pressured to have an abortion by her family and others uh, when she was pregnant at 16 because she, uh, she was starring she was starring in a Nickelodeon show at 16 um, and she became pregnant and she was pressured to abort. However, she chose life for her baby, which is amazing. Um, but Jamie says uh, in a quote that this is what she was told by onlookers, by family, uh, by friends even. They told her, quote, it will kill your career. You're just too young. You don't know what you're doing. There are pills you can take. We can help you take care of this problem. She says, everyone around me just wanted to make this, quote, issue disappear. And everyone was certain that termination would be the best course of action. And that is so sad to me right there because her baby was referred to as a problem, as a issue, not as her child that was worthy of life. Um... And so that, that there is just heartbreaking. You know, there's a history of it in the family. And not only are, are women pressured to abort Moses, um, as we've seen by these alarming statistics and just through Brittany's story and Jamie's story, but women, uh, you know, research has shown that over 60%, well over 60% of women who um, uh, were pressured into abortion, uh, these women show signs of trauma. Um, they... You know, they have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. They often have a higher risk. Actually, indeed, it's it, they have a 65% higher risk of clinical depression. Um, and they have a much, much higher rate of suicide compared to women who give birth. Uh, it's actually a six to seven times higher rate of suicide, the women who choose to give birth. And so that it's heartbreaking because it's a story that many women in America can relate to. And when Brittany says, quote, to this day, it's one of the most agonizing things I have ever experienced in my life. Um, it should break each of our hearts because th this story is common. Moses, what are your thoughts on this? Grace, thank you so much for sharing that story. I think um, what you're what you're doing by showing us not only is this one woman's individual story, but that this is all too common, and that abortion has serious and lasting emotional harms for women, just as it of course ends the life of a child. I think that's exactly what we should be focusing on, and I think I think one thing as I get older, 
that I think about, you know, is is regret, you know, regret mm-hmm. in the past or for the past. And so uh, Britney Spears is approaching 40. She would have been, you know, around 20 or so, I think, when uh, this decision was when she made the decision to uh, have an abortion. And mm-hmm. I think a lot about things that I did at that age that were mistakes, you know. And I, I sort of think that, well, coming at this from kind of a spiritual perspective, like I need to I need to minimize my regret over things that I did wrong back then. I, I've repented of those things, right? I've, I've been forgiven. But the way our minds work as we get older is that those experiences, the nostalgia and the regret are amplified. And so I just think that Britney Spears has spent the last 20 years agonizing over this child. You know, mm-hmm. She's, she says that this is the most agonizing thing I've have ever experienced in my life. And she has had a hard life. <laughs> you know, we, we, we've seen that. Her life has been lived in public. It's been really hard. But one of the most difficult things for her was this thing that happened in secret, this life that was taken. And it's, and you, we, we've heard these stories from celebrities before, right? And, and it's, and yet there are how many more of these stories are hidden. And of course, mm-hmm. the stories of celebrity women are more likely to get into the news. I just think, apart from all the other reasons that you should not have an abortion as a young woman who's pregnant and scared, you are in all likelihood setting yourself up for a lifetime of regret. I think Mm -hmm. it's absolutely true that, that people regret abortion at extremely high rates. Of course there are Mm -hmm. people who don't, but women very frequently regret abortions. And yet, um, and, and yet there are very few women who actually regret bringing a child into the world however hard that child's life ends up being women mm-hmm. love women love mothers love their children i mean that's one of the fundamental truths of being human so absolutely um, i i i'm just yeah i'm glad that you brought that story up i think maybe my final thought is let's let's prayerfully think about the women in our lives who who may have had abortions who mm-hmm. who who need love comfort forgiveness and to, to find hope and consolation. Grace, you and I both have talked with post-abortive women who offer post-abortive, uh, who offer support to other women in those situations. So I'm, I'm glad that that's available and I hope it will become more of a thing uh, that more women will seek that care. Mm-hmm. And I did want to switch gears now um, and talk about the 2024 election. And I, I wonder if some people, yeah. some people who, who are watching or listening might be wondering, why it's October 2023. Well, that means we're we're almost uh, just a little bit more than a year away from the 2024 elections. Things are starting to happen. And we need to be paying attention to these things now uh, so that we are prepared for what's going to happen next year. And there's a new poll uh, that I'll be talking about, Grace, and it has interesting results uh, for uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, um, if those are the two uh, nominees next year. Um, I want to start by looking back at a few year, uh, a few years. So in 2016, Donald Trump was on the ballot versus Hillary Clinton, and he uh, he lost by only a 1.5 percent margin. So that was a really close margin by Minnesota standards. In 2020, on the other hand, uh, Joe Biden uh, again, Donald Trump on the ballot. 
Joe Biden won by 7.2%. So there are many factors at play. Uh, a big one was Trump's handling of the pandemic. Now, I tend to think that people did not give Trump much credit for handling the pandemic in November 2020, but that in retrospect, um, uh, the th things with lockdowns and masks that he was not in favor of, I think a lot more people now give Trump credit for that response. So that may be a factor next year. Maybe it won't be. I don't know. Now, believe it or not, it's been three years since the last election. This Emerson poll is a sign that uh, pollsters and, and groups are looking at the 2024 election. And now there's the caveat, of course, anything could happen. Um, this These numbers assume that President Biden and former President Trump are both the nominees for their parties and they are healthy and uh, able to be on the ballot in 2024. If that were the case, this poll of Minnesota voters uh, suggests that 40% would support Biden, 38% would support Trump, 14% say they support someone else, while 8% are undecided. Now, on the surface, that's a 2% gap, more like 2016 than 2020. But we do need to look at the 22% of voters in this poll who are undecided or who are supporting someone else at this moment. Now, uh, the primary elections aren't over. That's one big factor. So there are plenty of Republicans who support uh, uh, Governor DeSantis or some other candidate. And there are perhaps Democrats who are interested in um, Governor Newsom of California or uh, RFK, uh, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, now, uh, we are looking at the probability that Trump and Biden will be the nominees. And so then those, a lot of those, uh, those voters who are Republicans and Democrats, they are going to coalesce around Biden and Trump, even if they are, uh, even if they are not super excited about doing that. So um, that will leave us with uh, two groups. You'll have voters who refuse to vote for either Trump or Biden. And we don't know what size of the population that will be. And then you'll have true undecideds who will not, who will vote for one or the other, but won't choose until election day. Now, if 2020 was an outlier and if 2016 was more of a trend-setting year, those voters have a good chance of breaking toward Donald Trump. But that's something we don't know yet. Um, the final factor here is, will there be a strong third-party candidate? Uh, mm -hmm. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., we haven't talked about him much on the podcast, but he has been running for president as a Democrat. But last week, he announced that he would be running as an independent for the presidential election. Um, and I noticed that both Biden and Trump, you know, this probably makes sense, but they both condemned the fact that he's now running as independent. And both <laughs> Biden and Trump, to an extent, feel threatened by RFK. Uh, they don't actually think that... Uh, RFK doesn't have a chance of winning the election, or at least very, very right. tiny chance. But there's a chance, Grace, that he could spoil the election. And various people are worried about this. I've seen uh, progressives being very worried about it, mm -hmm. and I've seen conservatives being a little bit worried about it. My sense is uh, right now that actually conservatives need to be more worried about this than they are. Uh, there have been some polls that show that RFK seems to be pulling from Biden voters. But that makes sense because up, up until this point, he's been running as a Democrat. However, there is a chance that Republicans could break towards Kennedy because they view him quite favorably. Um, 
Republicans are 55% like, uh, view him, um, 55% of Republicans view RFK Jr. favorably. Um, Democrats, only 35% are favorable toward him, right? So you could have a position where, especially if you have a stronger anti-Trump uh, sentiment within the Republican base, for example, if Trump was, uh, uh, was convicted of a crime or something, uh, or, or did something else that uh, lowered his popularity, you could have more unpopular, um, uh, more dis, dis, disaffected, disillusioned Republican voters turning towards um, uh, RFK. The same would be true, of course, if Biden had serious missteps. Then if there's a viable third-party candidate, uh, like possibly RFK, then perhaps you would have... Um, uh, you would have Democrats turning toward RFK, and then he would truly be a spoil, possibly a spoiling candidate for one or the other. It's worth remembering, though, in 2020, only 1.25 percent of voters pulled the lever for a candidate other than Biden or Trump in Minnesota. That's adding together all the third parties and uh, and including those who wrote someone else in entirely. So this has historically been a small pool. Probably one more thing to mention there is that um, uh, uh, is that we're talking about you know even if let's say that uh, let's say that um, I can't I'm really bad at math okay Grace I'm sorry but like let's say that um, that's okay our, you're a liberal arts student <laughs> I am I, right exactly I did liberal arts I never paid attention in math class and that shows doesn't it. Um, but if RFK gets 5% in Minnesota, he doesn't get 5% of our electoral votes. It's a winner-take-all right. system. So um, the candidate to get to 270 electoral votes is the person who will become president. And if um, if Biden has the most, uh, has a plurality of votes, even if he doesn't have an outright majority of the votes in Minnesota, he will get all 10 of our electoral votes. So that, so... Now, but on the other hand, let's imagine that vote uh, that two or three percent of the population decides to pull the lever for RFK instead of Biden. Well, that could push Minnesota into the Trump camp. I mean, it could. But on the other hand, Republican voters could swing toward RFK, and that would swing the state further towards Biden. So this is um, possibly less of a factor in Minnesota than it definitely is going to be in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, mm -hmm. the states that are going to be really close next year. Of course, anything could happen. Mm -hmm. Maybe Minnesota will be close. We we can but hope. Um, and that brings me, and I, I want to get your thoughts on this, but I thought I sh before I do that, I better bring up this other story because there are yeah. folks, there are people who are trying to keep President Trump off the ballot in Minnesota, uh, period. So I'm I'm reading. That's from, right. <laughs> I'm reading from the Star Tribune this week. Um, the court said uh, that the Trump campaign, which sought to intervene in the case, did not follow the proper procedure for seeking to participate in the case. The state GOP, uh, the state GOP, uh, did request to intervene. And that was not opposed. And this is a group uh, that's trying to keep Trump off the ballot. It's led by former Minnesota Secretary of State Joan Grow. And um, the court said that the Trump campaign can still participate by filing a friend of the court brief, et cetera, et cetera. So the petition would seek to
to bar Trump. It cites his actions in attempting to overturn the 2020 election, including his repeated claims of widespread election fraud and his urging of former Vice President Mike Pence to reject the certification of President Joe Biden. The petition cited Section 30 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which has been discussed across the country in part of a uh, in part because of a University of Pennsylvania Law Review article written by law professors Michael Stokes Paulson of the University of St. Thomas School of Law right here in Minnesota and William Baud of the University of Chicago. In its response, among other arguments, the state GOP argued that barring Trump on the ballot would interfere with its First Amendment rights by limiting who it may associate with as its presidential candidates. Now, one thing here that we could see um, is that uh, the, the, the current Minnesota Secretary of State, Steve, Steve Simon, has said that he expects this issue will ultimately be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's possible that Minnesota state courts could rule against uh, Donald Trump or that even if they rule in favor of Donald Trump, uh, the, the, uh, the plaintiffs here could uh, appeal this to higher to federal courts. And the Secretary of State has said he expects that to happen. So this is something we need to watch closely, folks, because we are seeing a serious challenge to keep the candidate of mm -hmm. a major party off of the presidential ballot. Now, Grace, you and I are not attorneys. We can't absolutely cannot mm -hmm. speak to the merits or lack thereof of this case. Um, but I, I'll say, I'll say this. I think that we can say for sure that a huge proportion of the state, uh, just for example, the you know forty something percent of Minnesotans who right now today want to vote for Donald Trump for president. Uh, they would feel that their rights were severely infringed if the candidate that they want to vote for, who has run in two previous presidential elections and won one of them, uh, would now suddenly be determined by the courts to not have the rights to be on the ballot for president. So that is a huge, that would be a, an insane shift. I don't believe it's ever happened. I'm pretty sure no major party candidate has ever been barred from running for president in that way. And we've had some real characters run for president in the past. So, Grace, I've been talking a lot. These two stories, uh, the Trump polling results and then also this uh, quest to keep him off the ballot. What do you think about all this? Yeah, Moses, I think you did a really good job breaking all of that down. Uh, with regard to the first thing you discussed, just breaking down the polling and talking about RFK, you know, my initial gut when it comes to RFK is I don't think he's going to swing it that much in Minnesota specifically. Now, I can't speak to nationwide. Now, I don't have a huge reason to think that way. It just... I don't think that enough Minnesotans are going to vote independent. Now, I could be wrong on that, but that's just my gut feeling, my gut response. But it's definitely something that we need to be tracking and thinking about. I mean, like you have been saying, anything could happen between now and the election. So we'll be keeping our eyes on that for sure. Uh, when it comes to the second story that, that you just discussed and broke down for our audience, yeah, can't speak to, you know, the actual case as we're not lawyers, but I do think that I agree with you that a lot of Minnesotans would be pretty offended if, you know, the court did somehow succeed in taking uh, Donald Trump off the ballot. I think that that would be, uh, I don't want to, I don't really want that to happen. I don't want to see what would happen, especially in rural Minnesota. I don't want to see these Minnesotans uh, triggered 
by that. So, but we'll have to see what happens because this this would be pretty groundbreaking stuff if that did happen. So you guys can count on us to keep you updated uh, as we continue to follow that story. Moses, those really are my thoughts on there. I agree with you, uh, your main points, and grateful for you breaking down those stories. One other thing I wanted to talk to our audience about, and I'll be interested to get your insight on this too, Moses, is how uh, here in Roseville, some schools uh, have coached teachers to conceal gender transitions from their parents. And you briefly touched on this in the intro, but let's take a closer look on what is happening there, because this is very close to home, you guys, here in Roseville. Um, So this is Alpha News reporting. And we will have that article linked in the description below so you can check it out and you can see actual pictures of this guidance that we're going to discuss. So a guidance that was recently provided to the teachers in Roseville directs them to consult with transgender students on whether their gender identity should be revealed in correspondence to home or during parent-teacher conferences. Now you guys already know (laughs) what the outcome of this will be. So Alpha News was informed that a, quote, LGBTQ plus inclusion guidance was distributed to the staff at the beginning of this calendar year, at the beginning of the school year, excuse me. And it does not, guys, get this, it does not appear anywhere available. It's, it is not available anywhere online for parents to review. So the parents can't even see this inclusion guidance anywhere and they're sending their kids to this school. Now that's a red flag to me, but... It doesn't just stop there. It gets a little bit crazier. So this guidance that is hidden from parents includes components from various regulations and policies related to, quote, LGBTQ inclusion. Um, It begins with, and again, you guys can see this in the article linked below, but it begins with a list of terms like gender gender binary, gender expansive, et cetera, et cetera. And the teachers are actually directed to familiarize themselves with these terminologies. Um, This guidance reads that every student has the right to be addressed by a name and pronoun correspondence to their gender identity. They have a right to. That's what Roseville schools are telling their teachers. Now, here comes the really uh, sinister part of this guidance, if you're not icked out by that so far. It says, quote, teachers should privately ask transgender or gender expansive. Now, I don't know what gender expansive means. I think gender expansive is just anything other than transgender. Like, I don't know, two-spirit, all these things. Okay. Um, They should ask these students how they want to be addressed in class, in correspondence to home or conferences with the student's guardian, it says. It then notes that, quote, the fact that a student chooses to disclose their gender identity to staff or other students does not authorize school staff to disclose private information about the student. When contacting the parent or guardian of a transgender or gender expansive student, school staff should use the student's legal name and the pronoun corresponding to the student's gender assigned at birth, unless the student or parent guardian has specified others. Otherwise, wow. Wow, you guys. That is just crazy. The guideline um, does go on to clarify that the staff can't withhold information on the student's gender identity from a parent if the parent specifically asks for that info. So in other words, you guys, this guidance is literally saying that 
If parents don't specifically know how to ask about this issue and the student doesn't want their parents to know anything about how they're presenting themselves at school, then this will be kept completely under lock and key by the school administration, by all the school staff because of quote unquote, the student's right to privacy. And that is just crazy. Now the guideline or yeah, the guideline that was distributed goes on to kind of train the parents on what they should be or the teachers on what they should be looking for with the parents. I mean, it's kind of sinister. It kind of it kind of makes me feel like they're trying they're actually trying to like push them to hide it at all costs. Um, to hide that gender identity from parents because the guidance goes on to explain that parents are going to generally be more likely to be aware of their children's gender identity if the younger child if it's younger children that are at stake but if it's older children then they say that in general parents will play less of a role in that child's gender transition so that is absolutely crazy and the guideline says that with an older student we always recommend that a school staff consult with a student before reaching out to the student's parent or guardian about anything that is so so crazy it's wild what roseville schools are trying to hide from a kid's parents um they in this guidance also it, it's the teachers are also instructed not only on this parental level which is really really harmful and disturbing to me um and i'm not even a parent but even in this guidance the teachers are also told that they shouldn't use any gender language or rely on gender as a quote means of dividing the class so instead they should divide based on birthdays or even clothing color um it reads, quote, many teachers may have the tendency to give directions such as boys line up here and girls line up there, which forces students to either out their gender identity or be categorized with a gender they may not identify with. Finally, instead of greeting with good morning boys and girls, teachers can greet students by simply saying good morning students. So my thought in response to this portion um, about just getting rid of this gendered language in schools is that basically this guidance is telling teachers to be gender blind, which as we know is basically being truth blind. So these, these teachers are being asked to reject reality. They're being asked to reject literally what they see before their eyes and to ignore that there are boys and girls in the class. It doesn't get more basic than that. Right. I would have a serious concern Sorry, Moses, go ahead. I hear you saying something. <laughs> no, I just said, I just said, right. I'm just so in agreement with you. Mm. Please continue. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just, they're literally being told to reject this reality. Um, and it, it's, fr it's so frustrating to me. I would not want to send my kids to a school where the teachers can't even tell a boy from a girl or they can tell, but they're not allowed to say it. It's ridiculous. I would not teach that teacher or that school to teach my child how to read, how to write, how to do math. I would not trust it. Um, and neither should you. Uh, there's there's even more sinister concerns here for me, Moses, and, and for everyone listening to this podcast, because this actually involves some pretty severe safety concerns for the girls that are attending these schools. Um, because if they're not allowed, if these teachers are not allowed to use gendered language, um, guess what else is is required under these guidelines? The district, Alpha News reports, is required to allow students to participate in activities based on their gender identity even in circumstances in which other parents, students, or community members raise objections or concerns. So this not only means that biological boys can be playing in girls' sports, which obviously hurts their ability to win competitions after their hard-earned training and, and, you know, their 
it basically affects their their and skews their ability to win. Not only that, but it means that boys can actually use bathrooms and locker rooms that are designated for girls and j- that are just in accordance with their quote unquote gender identity. Now that is some very that raises some very serious concerns for Minnesota's children, Minnesota's girls specifically. So, wow, that was a lot of info I just threw at you. But the main point, the main thing I want you to remember from this story, from this breaking news, is that these schools in Roseville are coaching our teachers that we pay taxpayer money to fund. They are telling these teachers to conceal gender transitions from parents. Those parents could be you. They're literally telling these parents not to say anything to you. Uh, That is awful. Absolutely awful. And in addition, you guys, there's all this stuff, safety concerns for girls. These teachers aren't supposed to use gendered language, um, which totally distorts truth. And they're rejecting reality and they're teaching their students to reject reality. Moses, I would love to hear your thoughts on this since you are a parent. Thank you, Grace. I I am a parent and, you know, the idea of the school district trying to keep information from me as a parent about my about my child, extremely personal information that as a parent I need to know to adequately care for my child. Uh, like if my child is being bullied at school, of course, I would expect the student to tell or the, I would expect the school to tell me. Uh, if there's any type of mental health concern that my child shows at school, the school district needs to tell me as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and to see that the school district, as you as you said, and I I won't uh, I won't reiterate this too much, but they uh, their their default posture is secrecy. Their default mm-hmm. posture is to um, uh, unless they're told otherwise. They will, even after a, uh, you know, a gender transition form or whatever is on file at the office, they will continue to uh, communicate to the parents using the student's birth name and birth sex, which, of course, is the only real sex that that person will ever have. And so that's their default posture, secrecy, hiding information from parents. Mm -hmm. And then to the safety concerns you raised... Uh, I like they're they're giving themselves this cushion. They're saying mm-hmm. um, uh, car- uh, students will be uh, allowed to participate in whatever the heck they want based on their gender identity perceived by them. Quote: Even in circumstances in which other students, parents, or community members raise objections or concerns, so it doesn't matter if a you know hundred concerned parents say, you know, there was an incident in the gender neutral mm-hmm. restrooms and we want to go back to having safe spaces for female students in our schools. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They've already, this policy, I'm sure the school board could override this policy, but this policy says we don't care how often and how loudly and how and with how much truth and conviction parents speak out against this ridiculous policy that hurts kids and puts female students particularly in danger, we're not going to change it. We're not going to do one darn thing about it because of the values of inclusion, the values of making uh, gender expansive and gender nonconforming and uh, non-binary and transgender students feel comfortable outweighs the priority of making sure that parents are involved in their students' education 
which is not just a responsibility of the school, it's a mandate because parental rights trump the rights of teachers and uh, school administrators to do anything. And then secondly, the safety and the well-being of particularly female students. Mm -hmm. Roseville schools are putting those things at risk and they need to be they need to be uh, called out. We're trying to do that now. Mm -hmm. If you live in or around the Roseville School District, it is extremely important that you write to your school board member right now um, and Mm -hmm. get involved with groups. There are groups that I'm aware of, so please get in touch with us, moses at mfc.org, and we will try to connect you with uh, your school district member or groups in this area, in the Roseville area, who can help you uh, get in front of the school board and present your concerns or, or make your concerns known in other ways. So uh, that, is, that is what we're able to do, and that, is what, and that is why we're trying to get the word out on this story. Grace, thank you mm-hmm. so much for bringing that to our viewers and listeners. Of all the things we talked about today, certainly that is the closest to home and the thing that we as Minnesotans and as uh, many of us are residents of the Twin Cities Metro, uh, we can actually do something about that. And, you know, we have seen school districts change their policies in response Mm -hmm. to pressure from the public. So this is not a lost cause. It's not a foregone conclusion. So um, I think we need to pray uh, <laughs> that the school district would reconsider and that parents would be successful in their efforts to make that happen. And speaking of prayer, uh, as as we have in, in the past weeks, we want to end this episode with a prayerful reading of a Bible verse. And mm-hmm. that is, as always, to emphasize that, um, at, you know, Grace and I and our organization, Minnesota Family Council, this is a Christian organization. We don't hide that under a bushel. And we don't make apologies for that. And moreover, we don't just say that. We also want to seek God's will in everything we do and and, and love his word and cherish the, the word of God that's been given to us. And so today I'm reading from Zechariah 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. So I think I think you have those words there. Justice, mercy, compassion. Do not oppress. Do not think evil. And those are the commands here. And, you know, those uh, some of those words, Grace, justice, mercy, compassion. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we hear those words more often from people on the other side of the political spectrum. And, and that's kind of concerning to me because actually, you know, uh, we, we don't determine what true justice, mercy, and compassion are. The, the Lord does, and he has told us what true justice, true compassion, and true mercy are. So, for example, to, to put a fine point on it, it is not truly compassionate to tell a student that they can become another, another sex, another biological sex. It is impossible to do that. Telling someone that they can do it risks perpetuating and worsening any mental health issues that they are going through. So that's a clear example to me, Grace, where the compassion of the world says one thing, but the compassion of God, which is based in truth and unalterable truth and and, and in God's love and in, and in God's nature, and in our nature as created beings who fundamentally we can't change our created nature, right? 
So there's this huge disconnect between the world's wisdom, the world's compassion, God's wisdom, God's compassion. And we need to remember that. We, are, we need to remember that when we are fighting back against lies, we're not, uh, we're not doing so in an uncompassionate or hateful or bigoted way. We're doing so because we know that God shows true compassion to us through his son, Jesus Christ, by sacrificing his only son. And so we know that justice, compassion, love, mercy, those things are defined by God and then practiced by us. We don't get to define those things and then make God into a paper mache figure who just validates what we have said and believe, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I'm taking from those verses uh, in Zechariah today. Do you have any thoughts on that, Grace? Moses, I think you just hit it out of the park. Um, I think you're right that those terms, um, you know, compassion, justice, like you just noted, they have been co-opted by progressives, unfortunately. And I think it's time that we take them back. And I think that we're up to a good start here in Minnesota with your guys' help. So um, please make your voice heard, like Moses said, uh, in Roseville, if you live in Roseville. And, you know, take back those words. Take back those words of justice, mercy, and compassion. And help these children in these schools. And, you know, pray pray for Britney Spears if you think of her today and um, that agonizing pain that she's still going through 20 years later. Um, Let us be the most compassionate, the most just, and the most merciful people out there because we know the one who is all of those things. Moses, thank you for that reminder. Amen. And uh, and I just want to say to everyone who's watching or listening, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Family Beacon. Every week we bring you the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom in Minnesota and throughout the country. Thank you so much for watching or listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of The Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you're up to date on life, family, and religious freedom. You can follow us on Instagram at MN Family Council and subscribe to us on YouTube to watch our content. Get the facts, stand for truth. Thank you.